Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, and you are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 on your dial. And today you have me, Chloe, one of your presenters, and... Ari. Good morning. It is Friday, (coughs) June the 3rd. It is currently around 8 degrees outside, so I hope everybody is all rugged up and warm because we've and yeah we've got a, a really good show lined up for you today but before we begin we'd just like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the rightful sovereign owners of the land on which we live work and organize they never ceded sovereignty and the colonization of their land continues to this day and we pay our respects to their elders past present and emerging and as socialists we pledge to actively support decolonization whether in the black lives matter movement invasion day black debts in custody or stolen generation campaigns or in any other campaigns led by indigenous <coughs> australians um and yeah how are you this morning ari no comment <laughs> so onto the news though because we're a news show, or so I'm told. Yes. Um, still in the headlines, as you would expect, the federal election. Um, the Labour Party has officially won a majority. I'm not sure if they're up to 77. I think that was still in doubt, but they definitely got 76 seats. Yep. Um, so they're a majority, which, as we were talking about last week, is kind of a shame, but um, it's also, you know, kind of... An expected result to an extent, and it's not all bad, of course, like we were talking about last time. And one of the things that is good, definitely, is, um, as you know, the ABC pointed out, and as a lot of people have pointed out, and it's pretty obvious, we have a record number of women in the cabinet. Yeah. Which is great. Um, that has been, been one of the big problems for the previous federal government, was both the number of women and their treatment of women in general. Um so, <coughs> pardon me. So having uh, quotas, having a lot of women in parliament now is good. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that much for women, though. Of <laughs> course, like as we saw with Julia Gard um, rolling back payments for um, single mothers and childcare support and stuff like that. So it's good, but it doesn't necessarily mean much. Um, the the other thing though that I think is good in the same probably in the same way that this the number of women in Parliament is good is that we have a record number of crossbenchers. I think we're up to sixteen at the moment, um, and I think there's still one or two seats undecided, so we'll see. But sixteen at the moment, and I would say that that's good, right? Um, even though Labor does have a majority now, which means that they technically don't have to always deal with the crossbench, but it's it indicates a good trend, I think, and 
it's better to have uh, fewer people in the two main parties in the government and the opposition than for there to be less, in my opinion, um, in probably all of our opinions. <clears throat> so if that trend continues, which it seems to be, um, judging from past federal elections, we could ideally end up with um, the kind of permanent minority government with a large crossbench, which would be good. Um, we have... I believe it's 14, sorry, 12 independents and four greens. Yep. Um, and the independents are, I would say, a bit variable politically. Um, one thing that is good is that a lot of them are of the sort of teal variety in the sense that they're fairly, a lot of them are fairly strong on climate change. Um, but. There's the problem, of course, that a lot of the teal independents and some of the other independents, like Bob Catter or whatever, uh, also on the conservative end of things, um, in the, at probably the rest of their positions. Um, not saying Bob Catter's good on climate change, just that, you know, <laughs> a lot of the, the independents are better on climate change than even the Labour Party is, which is good. Um, <coughs> but it's sort of, in the same way that the having more women in Parliament doesn't necessarily mean anything specific for women, um, having a bunch of essentially conservative but sort of more green-leaning people in Parliament doesn't necessarily mean anything, especially if, the like the Labour Party, they end up pushing for market-driven solutions to climate change rather than, well, actual practical <laughs> solutions to climate change. Um, like... We've, I'm sure we've talked about on the on the um, the show before that in a way, the the realistically the only way to deal with climate change is to nationalise green energy and like force the industry in a quote unquote artificial way force the the energy market into green solutions and into because, public hands. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because for one, we need community ownership of everything. Yeah. <laughs> for even because even green, like even th- a theoretical perfect green capitalist industry, is still going to be an industry that exploits people, even if that's through um, just just uh, energy prices or whatever. But uh, it's it should be at this point a well-known problem that a lot of companies in general. But particularly energy companies in that sort of area of companies have basically a budget for environmental fines. <coughs> Pardon me. And so you end up with, like I said, you have this problem of the market-driven solution means that you end up with these more green companies who budget for doing things wrong, really, more than they care about doing things right necessarily. And then you have the problem of anything that's private, of costs, uh, fees, the treatment of um, the ordinary people, that sort of stuff. <coughs> so it's like like we said last time, it is ultimately, it is broadly speaking good, the results of the federal election, but more importantly in some ways, it, indicate, it indicates good trends, which I think is encouraging. Like, if we see further pushing of these sorts of trends in the next federal election, more Greens or uh, more crossbenchers, more women, a more diverse cabinet, 
then we have more of a chance of actually pushing the big parties to the left, which Labour having the majority and particularly Dutton getting into um, becoming the leader of the opposition party doesn't, that's not an incentive for Labour to move left. But we'll be talking about Dutton more later. Um, another big, big thing, um, slightly more local, is a new bill uh, proposed by the Victorian government, um, Sustainable Forests Timber Amendment, the Timber Harvesting Safety Zones Bill 2022, which will increase fines and threaten jail time to anti-logging protesters. And this is being phrased as for the safety of um, forestry workers, I suppose. But <clears throat> as um, I think it was Melbourne, Melbourne Activist Legal, um, .org.au, criminalizing protest is bad for democracy. As they point out, A, criminalizing protests is bad for democracy. But B, the safety concerns are fairly overblown. And this legislation uh, follows similar anti-protest laws in Queensland, uh, which is, that's 2019, that that was introduced, and in New South Wales more recently, as well as um, animal anti-animal rights protest laws, um, which were introduced in March in Victoria, this last March. This will obviously have something of a cooling effect on protesters, though we've talked to some... Uh, environmental protest groups in the past who talk about, who take a kind of more radical or um, dangerous to themselves approach in terms of um, putting themselves between machinery and trees or like the people who I've forgotten the name of, unfortunately, apologies, uh, who we talked to a while back who were talking, who were like blocking railways and stuff to um, the coal export uh, docks, I think, in Victoria. So those sorts of protests happen with the understanding of possible arrest. So there is that. But increasing the probability of arrest, increasing the penalty for these sorts of things will definitely have a, have a cooling effect on any kind of mass actions or the possibility of mass actions. And it's, of course, undemocratic, right? It stops people from having a voice when it comes to these sorts of things. The more anti-protest laws we have, which it's just an ever-growing number, really, the harder it is to have mass protests and the less people want to go to these sorts of mass protests that do occur because there's more threat of punishment, essentially. And even if people believe these sorts of things, if they, you know, people, you don't want to get arrested, I guess, is the way of putting it. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. So it's a problem. I guess it makes it hard for people to express their voice um, when it comes to basically any issue. The more laws there are penalizing protests. So uh, moving on from that. But just before you yes. move on. Um, and and, and good morning, Sue Bolton. <laughs> we do have another presenter in the studio this morning. So, yeah, it's good to have Sue here with us. Hi, Hi it's Sue here. Um I think it's also important to remember this has been tabled but not passed yet. Yes, so there's still a chance yeah. to stop this. And um, so now I don't know the exact timeline of when they're likely to try and pass it, but there is still a chance to actually stop it. So yes. I think that needs to be um, a focus with this um, with these laws. And yeah, so that's agreed. where we'll need to talk to other groups about yeah. actions. 
Yes, very much agreed. That is, uh, yeah, a good thing to uh, bring up again is that, yes, this is a proposed bill. Uh, it hasn't passed. Similar things have passed in other places, but that doesn't mean that it will in Victoria. Um, but to, yeah, move on to the next thing um, briefly is I think we wanted to talk a bit about what has the new Labor government done in its first few days in office. Obviously, they haven't mm. been in long, but that hasn't stopped them from immediately kind of showing their colours, right? Yeah. Um, so we mentioned last week that they Im- almost immediately turned back a refugee boat. Uh, I can't remember where that was from off the top of my head, but... Sorry, what was that? They turned back a refugee yeah, boat, yeah, the, but... the one that came in on the election. Yeah, yeah. Which I forgot where they turned it back to. To Sri, Sri Lanka. Lanka. Thank yeah. you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and... But since then, they've turned back another boat. Um, I don't have the details of that in front of me, unfortunately. And they, while they have sent the... And we know that there's, sorry to interrupt you, but there, you know, there is no safe way to turn back boats. I mean, no. the, you know, both, both major parties try to, um, you know, try to lie to the Australian public saying things like, we are protecting Australian borders or, you know, we're saving lives at sea. But really, they are doing something illegal, but, yeah. but they are risking lives at sea. They are, I mean, it is a very, sad and sadistic thing that Australian Border Force are actually seeing boats in distress, um, people fleeing persecution, uh, war, and actually just watching these, like turning these boats back around and just watching them go back to their starting point. It's um, it's really devastating for refugees. Um, and yeah, another thing that they've done is they're, they're pushing ahead with, you know, uh, coal and gas mines. They're pushing ahead with the Scarborough Gas Project along with opening up the Betaloo Basin, and you can read about um, some of the protests around that in Green Left. And, you know, they're still driving war and militarism. They're meeting fascists like, um, you know, Modi, um, the Prime Minister of India, and they've met with the Quad. And we we are going to be talking a little bit about this in... I did forget to give a bit of a rundown on our show this morning, but we're going to be joined shortly by William Briggs, and we're going to be talking a little bit about the new Prime Minister, the new government, militarism, and um, you know the meeting with the Quad, and then at um, at 7:45 we're going to be talking with Paul Gregoire, um, and who's a Sydney-based anti-prison activist, and he's going to be speaking a little bit about um, Peter Dutton's appointment as the leader of the opposition. And stay tuned again um, at 8:10 because we'll be speaking with Deepak Joshi, who will be speaking a little bit about the BJP and the. Um, you know, links to the RSS and the fact that there is a BJP speaker uh, currently in Melbourne at the moment um, trying to speak at several events, and there are protests around this. So um, those are the three interviews to listen up for. But, we, yeah, we probably should wrap up this segment. Um, unless, Sue, did you want to add anything? Okay. We're just going to go to a quick announcement, and we'll be back with first interview with William Briggs. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Stay tuned. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. 
Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR and we are really happy to be joined by William Briggs who is a teacher, journalist and political economist and activist and regularly writes for Green Left and we'll be discussing issues related to the new Prime Minister, uh, militarism and the Quad. Uh, welcome back to the show William. We've got a few um, you know, questions to ask you about um, you know, the change in government and you have written an article in Green Left um, it's titled Business as Usual, Albanese and the Quad, uh, where you mention the first action of a new government is always steeped in symbolism. And we know one of the first actions of the Albanese Labour government was to fly, um, you know, he, he's, one of the first actions was for him to fly to Tokyo and pledge his support to the anti-China grouping of the US, Japan, India and Australia, the, the quadrilateral security dialogue or the, or the Quad as they are known. Uh, William, what does this symbolise? Yes, thanks. Um, yeah, as I say, uh, all new governments come in with some symbol. Uh, usually it's just fairly empty rhetoric, you know, we will govern for all, or we will do this, or we will lift living standards, or we will cure this problem or that problem. Albanese's first act of symbolism was to effectively let everybody know in this country and the world just where his allegiance and the allegiance of the Australian government and therefore uh, ruling elites in this country, where it really lay. And it's got nothing, and that allegiance is not to the people or the problems or the, uh, the trillion dollar debt or any of those things, but to reaffirm in the eyes of particularly Biden and the United States, to a lesser extent the other Quad members, just the fact that they have absolutely nothing to fear by this change of government. It is just a change of name. Our role will remain as it has traditionally, um, that of complete and total ally of the United States whilst playing our own independent role in support of them in the region. Um, because there's nothing surer than in the last few years, the drift has been towards confrontation with China. Uh, it would have been a very, very dangerous move for any new government to come in and say, look, we're going to have really wonderful relations. We're going to uh, go into sort of bilateral relations with China, possibly at the expense of our allies. We're never going to do that. And we had to let everybody know that we are there with the United States as strongly as ever. And in fact, he did make a statement that he was going to 
seek to strengthen the alliance even further, which of itself is an almost impossible exercise in hyperbole because something that is as committed as it is can barely be strengthened. But that was a, that is really what the symbolism is all about. We will not be changing any actions. We are still, on the one hand, a, a subservient, almost vassal state of the United States, but we will act independently when necessary in your interests, which are perceived to be our interests. Uh, so that's, that is the thing that was, was most obvious in that very first day, and even before the election, he pledged to be in Tokyo, um, before he even was able to form a government, before he was assured of a majority or whether he'd be ruling a minority. None of that was important. What was important was to make that journey to Foreign Minister Wong to go with him to say, look, we are here and we will stay and you will maintain your position of power and privilege in the Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific. So that's really what the symbolism is all about. Mm. Um, Ari here. What's China's response being like in terms of um, Albanese and the Quad's sort of uh, military theatrics, so to speak, their symbolism? Yeah. China... China was, on the one hand, looking to um, improve relations. Things are very, very poor. They said that, you know, we'd like to sort of reset this relationship, we'd like to work with the new government, and that was a sort of conciliatory gesture. At the same time, they are not, they're not fools in any, any regard. They, their response to the Quad was unequivocal, that it was seeking to... Um, uh, strengthen the, the, the ring, if you like, against China, uh, the Quad, and the AUKUS alignment, which they describe as the globalisation of NATO, uh, bringing, or actually they supported that, that idea, which had come from, from Britain trying to, to engage more heavily with the AUKUS in, in, the, in the region. They see the threat uh, as an absolute threat. They recognise that Australia is not going away as part of that threat, the minor threat that it may be, but they are wanting, if at all possible, it would seem, to soften that relationship. Albanese, in response, of course, made a big fuss about the, uh, the trade sanctions, as he described them, which were, in fact, responses to Australia's rather belligerent stance under the former government in support of the United States. Now, that stance is actually strengthened. So China China is rightly, I think, feeling threatened by the strengthening of the Quad, the strengthening of the, of the alliance, the AUKUS relationship, and that whole encirclement process and, and policy that, that the United States has been implementing for so many years, moving from containment to almost a position of um, rollback, if you like. But... Uh, so I don't know if that goes anywhere near answering the question, but I, that's really where, where their, their responses and their, their thoughts appear to be. No, that's a good answer. Yeah, and, and William, no matter what <laughs> these quad leaders say, I mean, there's really no evidence to, su- to suggest any overt threat from China. The world sits on the brink of a global recession, and the challenge that you've said in your article, the challenge from China is is economic. Um, could you please elaborate on this point? Mm. Yeah. Um, it comes in a, in a number of number of ways. Um, if, first of all, we think about China and its 
uh, foreign policy. Foreign policy of, of any country and, and diplomatic policy generally includes uh, that act of diplomacy, uh, act of economic, uh, economics, trade and so on. Very few countries have built into that policy uh, a military part. The United States bases it entirely on, 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 on a military component. China never had. China traditionally, and we're talking traditionally over, over hundreds and hundreds and possibly thousands of years, has almost exclusively not been expansionary in that militarist way. Um, China, since opening up to the West and adopting uh, capitalism as, a, as an economic formation that seemed to suit it, and effectively uh, rejecting socialism, if you like, became, first of all, in the eyes of the West, a, a workshop, a, a huge factory, and then it got good at being capitalist and started to behave exactly as other capitalist states do, and its economy rose rapidly and is still rising. Even though it's stalling at the moment as the, as the world appears to be headed into recession, its economy is the and its percentage rise is the only thing that is keeping the entire global economy from absolute catastrophe. Uh, now, the United States, as anybody, if I'm aware of this, the United States certainly are, um, they are absolutely horrified at the prospect of losing that hegemony, of losing the, the economic top status in the globe, because from that economic status, the United States controls the world. Now, China obviously wants to maximise their uh, power economically, and that is happening. The United States need to, to counter that. So if there is a threat, it is certainly not a military threat, because if you think about the Chinese military capacity, uh, if you look for the, the People's Liberation Army, you'll find them in China or on the borders. Their Navy is on the borders. Their Air Force is on the borders. They're not ringing the globe with bases. Um, but the, the threat, therefore, is obviously not one of a military threat. But the threat to the, not the global capitalist order, but the American capitalist order is immense. For you or I or anybody else who happens to have to go out and earn a living, it doesn't matter one jot whether the ruling capitalist economy is based in, in America, China, anywhere. Switzerland doesn't matter. The rules are the same. The exploitation is the same for the ordinary working class people anywhere in the world. But what matters, as far as the United States is concerned, is loss of power and prestige. And it will do anything to maintain that. And along the way, it has created a myth which has worked spectacularly well of there being a Chinese threat. Uh, those statistics that come out regularly in Australia when they poll people, uh, how much can you trust China? Is China a threat to us? It's well over 60% now believe that China is, is a danger to us. Just 10 years ago, there was about a 30% belief that China would not behave uh, responsibly. Now it's a vast, overwhelming majority believing that China is a threat. And it's a threat because it threatens US economic hegemony. And it's as simple as that. But economics is one of those things that our ruling classes like to make appear 
as foggy and as difficult and as, as they say, the dismal science as much as possible. People's eyes glaze over as soon as the word gets used. Political issues, they can get a better head, head around. And if that means a bayonet attached, whether it's real or, or imagined, so much the better. So China becomes a threat, even though there is no possible gauge that it is in any way. It is, it is what it is. It is seeking to advance own economic strength and is doing so. Uh, and it can only rise as the United States falls, and that is so palpably obvious. That, that disparity is getting less and less. China is becoming, is really closing the gap in the United States. The only difference is whether it's going to happen in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but it is almost inevitable that China will become the economic hegemon, and the United States is never going to accept that because it can only do one of a number of things. It can share power, which it won't. Uh, it's going to dominate, which it will try to do, or it can pack its bags. The US imperators can say, I'm off to the Bahamas for my holidays. It's not going to do that either. But it only sees America rising and keep on rising. Part of their American exceptionalism, part of their mythology. And that's what makes the world a dangerous place. Not military threat, but America's fear of loss. In terms of the America's fear of loss of power and what we were talking, what you were talking about earlier about um, the whether or not the U.S. or China is the major economic power in the world, not really affecting ordinary people, it does also. It is also true that militarism and war hurts ordinary people. So the more we militarize, the more we threaten war with China, the more that will harm the ordinary people. And you mentioned in your article that. Our, in Australia, our kind of total subservience to the interest of the U.S. is hardly the way forward, right? And it's not the U.S.'s way forward either. So how is the Australian government justifying ramping up militarism and its war drive against China if it seems to be in the... if it's really only in the interest of the U.S. elite? Yeah. Yeah, this becomes the, the crux of so much of uh, politics and foreign policy yeah? and... Uh, in, in this country and in the world. It doesn't make the slightest bit of sense for Australia to remain in the subservient position to the US interest, except for the fact that foreign direct investment, the money that one capitalist state invests in another, remains so heavily weighted uh, globally in the United States way. Nearly 25% of all the money invested in Australia comes from the US. Mm. Um, and various American leaders, secretaries of state and so on, have made it clear that it's not a good bet to bet against the US. So uh, the threat is not terribly veiled. Uh, you wouldn't want us to withdraw that, uh, that port. China's, for instance, is only 2% of all of Australian foreign investment comes from China. It's the biggest trading partner, but certainly not an investment partner. Mm. Um, so it is not in our interest. Militarism is not in our interest. It is not in the interest of the United States people either, or China, or anybody. But that fear of loss of economic stability propels the Australian ruling class to side with the United States, even in its, when it's not in its best interest. And that also, there's an element here which is almost part of the psyche of the country. If you 
think of the history of the place uh, and the symbolism, again, of the place. It, is, it has been built on fear from the time of white settlement, white colonisation of this, of this continent. There was always a look over the shoulder. There was fear was engendered in the people. Somebody is going to come and take our stuff from us. Uh, it's been, historically been China, of course, and we've always been in a subservient position to first of all, British imperialism, US imperialism, that, that says that unless we have a strong, uh, not so much partner, but uh, a strong wing under which we can shelter, we are in existential danger. It's never been the case. But uh, by ramping up uh, militarism, by building all of that, it does one of two things for Australia. It secures its position as a uh, smaller imperialist power in, the, in the, our immediate region. Uh, we have threatened, cajoled, coerced and ill-treated the people of the Pacific. That has been able to be done because we are the major power in that region. Uh, we, we then, by allying ourselves so uh, unbelievably with the United States, we can then play a role as we have seen ourselves playing a role with the United States imperialism since, since the Second World War to secure support, to secure economic support, not military support because the, the, uh, the, the, the pacts never, never uh, acknowledged that is, that is going to be reciprocal. But the militarism also engenders in our own people if handled well or poorly, a sense that that fear factor still maintains. If we don't spend the 2% of GDP on the military, we're going to be in a weakened position. Militarism also uh, holds a people in thrall. There is little room for manoeuvre on the part of the people if overarching power is increasingly militarised whether that is the role of, of, the, of the, the armed forces, even the police become militarised under these conditions. The crisis that we're existing under within capitalism means that force becomes the greater uh, way of implementing ideas rather than um, convincing of people. Uh, and if, if we can just finish up these comments on the idea that uh, our new... Uh, new Defence Minister, Miles, uh, in his first statement, his first utterance on all of these uh, issues was that um, despite... He was asked the question... Sorry, he was asked the question as to what about uh, the economic crisis that we're facing? What does this mean for the military and defence spending? And he said it will not affect it one cent. Our spending will continue to grow, continue to rise, we're committed to that 2% of GDP for the, for the military. The rest of us, the people, will be forced to be, live in straightened times, in economic recession. People will remain difficult to find houses, difficult to find decent health care, be ravaged by COVID uh, viruses and all the rest of us, but the military will survive because that militarism is intensely part of the psyche of the country and growing as the threat to capitalism grows. The threat to capitalism, as I said before, doesn't come from China, but it comes from capitalism itself as it fails. Mm. 
I think I might have diverged a little bit there. No, but, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's good. No, that's um, yeah. I think that's a great way to wrap up, uh, William. Thank you so much for for joining us on the show. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll have you back. And I encourage people to read William Briggs' um, articles on Green Left. Um, and yeah, thank you, thank you so much, William. William Briggs thank is a you. teacher, a journalist, a political economist, and activist. And um, yeah, we were just discussing, um, you know, what what the new government means in terms of this war drive against China, um, militarism, and the war. Uh, we're going to go to uh, a song, um, and yeah, and we'll be back with more news headlines. See ya. Bye. And yeah, we're going to be playing "Always Was, Always Will Be." Aboriginal Land by Matt Ward. I grew up in England depressed Cause there's no sunshine One day a mate said down under It's nothing but good times I got fifteen hundred quid Cause my granddaughter said Let's split the cash and Fly to the sunshine Always was and always will be Aboriginal land Always was and always will be Aboriginal land Always was and always will be Aboriginal land Always was and always will be The sky so blue When I felt that sun in my bones I felt brand new When I tasted the food the quality was Like nothing I knew When I saw the beauty around me I went boo-hoo-hoo
All right, and you are back with Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM, and we're back with a bit more news. A reminder that you can go to greenleft.org.au to find more of our news coverage as well as analysis and opinion pieces, though admittedly we don't have an article up yet about our next topic, which is an update on Turkey's ongoing war against the Kurds, uh, which Sue is going to start telling us about. So while the war in Ukraine has been going on, um, some people, although not everybody, are aware that there's also a war happening in Yemen, which has um, got absolutely disastrous consequences for people in Yemen. But another invasion has happened, which has not been reported on by the mainstream media at all, and not a single comment by any major company, major country, which is um, involved in condemning Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So on the 14th of April, Turkey launched a full-scale invasion of southern Kurdistan, which is sort of the northern part of Iraq. And they both, um, they airdropped uh, all sorts of different um, elements of their military, um, as well as bombarding um, people from, um, from border posts, but also they've used um, chemical weapons on those communities um, in northern Iraq or southern Kurdistan. And um, this is, you know, really causing huge distress for the Kurdish community, although it's not only the Kurdish community that's suffering, it's all of the different minority communities in that part of the world, which includes um, not only Kurds, but Yazidis and Christians and Assyrians as well, um, but it is like a full scale of invade, full scale invasion in southern Kurdistan, as well as maintaining and stepping up their daily um, military attacks on um, the Kurds and the people of northeast Syria, and so this is really um, really terrible. I mean, many people in the Kurdish community in in Victoria in Australia. Uh, getting calls from family members about people who've been killed or injured or had their houses destroyed as a result of this invasion. Um, it is amazing that the organisation that's set up to, um, to prohibit um, chemical weapons, the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, hasn't taken any action against Turkey. Um, despite, um, you know, the use of chemical weapons being banned internationally and strongly condemned. I mean, the U.S. and other countries condemned the U.S. of uh, condemned the use of uh, chemical weapons by the Syrian government, the Assadist dictatorship in in um, Syria um, during the Syrian civil war. Um, but there's been silence from the media and all of these big. Um, big nations um, as a result of what Turkey's doing. They've engaged in indiscriminate shelling of civilian areas and drone strikes, which have been steadily escalating. And it seems that um, part of the um, project of the Erdogan government um, in Turkey is to create a greater Turkey as well as to eliminate the Kurds. I mean, the sort of weapons they're using are helicopters, fighter jets, reconnaissance planes, as well as ground attacks. 
and howitzers being fired from border posts. Um, so this is a permanent bombardment and full occupation of southern Kurdistan mm. that Turkey is carrying out. And it's worth noting that the... I mean, or pointing out more explicitly maybe that it is very much an issue of hypocrisy, right, is that NATO is condemning Russia doing similar things, their invasion, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because Ukraine is an ally or a potential ally, whereas Turkey is, I believe, the second biggest military in NATO. Um, so they're an ally, so they can do what they want, as we see with Israel um, and their treatment of Palestine and Palestinians, as we see with um, a lot of examples of NATO doing the things that NATO says are illegal, right? So, but we will come back to this issue next week with a bit more detail, and hopefully we'll have somebody, an interview with uh, somebody from the Tur- sorry, the Kurdish community to talk about this stuff and keep everybody up to date with what's going on. Um, But right now we are going to play a quick announcement and then move on to our second interview with um, Paul Grigori. Um, So, yes, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and stay tuned for when we come back. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You are back with Green Left Radio on 3CR, and we are really pleased to be joined by Paul Gregoire. Uh, Paul is a Sydney-based anti-prison activist and writer for Sydney Criminal Lawyers, who has also contributed to Green Left. Uh, Paul's on the line now to discuss Peter Dutton's appointment as the Liberal Party leader, and also a bit about Dutton's record in building the surveillance state. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me, Chloe. Uh, so, um, Paul, how do you feel about Dutton's, uh, Peter Dutton's appointment as the leader of the opposition? Well, I would say it wasn't that much of a surprise because he seemed to be the last one standing out of the small group of Liberal members likely to be the future leader. Um, but it's still a shock to see such a divisive character take on the lead role. It's disappointing because it places an arch-conservative political viewpoint in a key influential position in the parliament, which will serve as a drag on lawmaking and policy in that direction. Um, And his being appointed uncontested also means that within the Liberals, no other politician within its ranks in federal parliament felt that strongly enough to bring a more moderate point of view to the fore. Mm. Um, Can you talk a bit about... uh Dutton's track record and his various portfolios as Minister for Immigration, Home Affairs and Defence, like his human rights records, his positions on uh, refugees and First Nations people and that sort of thing. 
I'll just stick to his first position. Uh, well, Dutton's part, been in Parliament for two decades, but he didn't really become this prominent figure until he took on the role of Immigration Minister, which is what I'll stick to in, in reference to this question. Um, but from that time on um, that he took on the role of Immigration Minister, he's been in the public ear making statements that played on play on uh, voter fears of the other. And this other is, in, is always uh, a foreigner and a person of colour. So Dutton took over the immigration portfolio at the height of when the offshore refugee and asylum seeker prison system was operating. And he was tough on his treatment of refugees and he was determined to keep them offshore. Um, and while he, was, while he was being tough on the refugees, he was priming the media with derogatory statements and scandals to carry public support for this position. Um, so whether... So this was, there was... He brought up that he brought up... Um, Positions where he stated the women on Nauru were pretending to be raped so they could get to Australia to have an abortion, that asylum seekers were all illiterate and couldn't count and would take on Australian jobs. Or, and he also lamented the fact that um, Lebanese people were allowed to immigrate to Australia in the 1970s. He said that might have been a mistake. In early 2018, he warned that Melbourne was too afraid to go out to dinner because of a non-existing African gang crisis. And a few months later, um, he, he announced that he'd found the perfect refugee for our nation to take in, and that was persecuted white South African farmers. So at this point, Dutton really came to the fore as a divisive character, and, and that was effective in terms of carrying the uh, Conservative vote. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning briefly that the issue of white South African farmers was very much uh, motivated by the kind of U.S. far-right conspiracism kind of angle that uh, there was a lot of stuff going on at the time around there. But um, the next question is from your article, uh, Return of Dutton, the coalition strikes back with the arch-conservative, uh, which is on sydneycriminallawyers.com.au. Um, you say a uh, newly appointed Home Affairs Minister um, can certainly look across the chamber and note a glint in Dutton's eye that says, the harsher the laws, the better, mate. We'll pass them through. Is the danger of having someone like Dutton heading up the, this kind of ultra-conservative coalition, is the danger of that that it will not at all motivate the ALP to do anything progressive at all? Like, if they're they know that they can get these conservative measures passed through. Will that motivate them to push for more conservative measures, do you think? Well, the major issue with having him front up the coalition in opposition at the moment, because we've had this perfect situation with the vote, or near the perfect, whereby the sh there was a, that great shift away from the two major parties, mm. and we've seen a large progressive crossbench made up of Greens and Teal members, these members want to push Labor towards more realistic climate action, as well as um, the establishment of a federal anti-corruption watchdog that actually has teeth. And so if, if Labor's looking to pass laws that aren't conservative enough for the coalition opposition, then he has that support with the progressive forces. But in return, if, if Labor's looking to curb the greater push for, for climate action, which is very likely to happen, or if they're looking to water down their model of an ICAC, 
this would be much easier to do if, if they just have to look across at Conservative Peter Dutton on the other side of the chamber who's, who's wanting to see the same outcome as them. Yeah, um, thanks, Paul. There is a Green Left article written by your colleague Uga Nadim from Sydney Criminal Lawyers called Dutton's Record Building the Surveillance State. And we just wanted to draw from that article because he talks about how Dutton was part of forming and supporting privacy eroding laws. Uh, and some of these laws are just, you know, I mean, like I, I didn't, I mean, you don't even have to be suspected of an offence for authorities to do things like access and monitor you for at least two years um, of, a, of a range of your personal data. And, yeah, if people want to read through that article, it's actually quite frightening, um, the kind of laws that um, Dutton helped form. And he writes that the need to protect people against terrorists has been used to justify many laws which have turned Australia into a country which has the most pervasive surveillance laws of any Western democracy. So, Paul, how likely is it that these laws will be actually enacted, and how will it affect? Like, how will these laws affect ordinary people? Well, there's been a proliferation of these national security and counterterrorism laws passed at the federal level. Um, these laws have, for the most part, been justified on the terror threat, and this has been a bipartisan project. So it's been Labor and Coalition have both been in agreement with these laws. When, when, they're, when, they're sent, when these laws are put on the table, they're then sent to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security to review them and amend them. And that's made up of Liberal, um, Labor and Nationals members who, who then debate how the laws will be best applied and then they're just passed through. Um, so these and these are the sort of the laws that eat away at the rights of all of us, um, such as the right to privacy. And at the federal level, they've passed about 94 bills over the last two decades since the New York attacks. So this is something we can expect to keep happening under Labor. And Peter Dutton will be quite happy to see his work, his early work, being built upon. Um, and that's why uh, people are calling for a Human Rights Act or a Bill of Rights to be established at the federal level in, uh, in Australia, because Australia continues to be the only Western liberal democracy without a Bill of Rights or, or a Human Rights Act. And, and that would enshrine our rights in, in uh, you know, a variety of rights that you see in the um, international mechanisms and treaties. Um, in federal law, and these sort of laws would then have to be weighed up against the, these rights that are enshrined in law so that they don't clash with citizens' rights or liberties. And, and, there could be, and there could even be a winding back of these sort of laws if we had such a bill. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks, um, Paul. This is all, it's quite, quite concerning. And, yeah, we should have... Um, a, a bill, I think it's a bill. Is it a bill of rights? What's it called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or a human rights act. Human mm. rights act. Yeah, and we should. There's lots of places are pushing for it, like the Civil Liberties Australia and the and the Human Rights uh, Law Centre in Melbourne are all pushing for this sort of mm. uh, yeah. bill to be established. Yeah, and I think you know we definitely need to get behind campaigns to support that. Yeah, and in the meantime, uh, listeners can look up free VPNs. It's not illegal to use them, and they hide your traffic from your internet service provider, which the government is compelling to provide with your personal information.
Ah, just by the way. Good, good tip. <laughs> um, oh, Paul, just a, a bit of a like a silly question to wrap things up. And if you wanted to have any last comments before we wrap up the interview, but you know, Dutton has, you know, he did take the evil immigration minister to a, a whole new level. And we, you know, we've seen lots of social media circulating the photo of his face covered by dark shadows. You know that he actually tried to ban. And, you know, there's been so many anti-Dutton campaigns and uh, memes circulated that parried him as this evil power uh, craving um, pop like culture figures like like Darth Vader or Voldemort. Even in your article, um, you know, it's like the return of the Dutton, the coalition strikes back. It's like, um, you know, the Empire strikes back and you can see stormtroopers in the background. Um, and, you know, he's trying to – his campaign um, – office is trying to like well you know they're trying to soften his image and we just wanted to know you know do how hard is that going to be is he gonna do you think he'll have any success in softening his image after all he's done well i think it's quite hilarious to think that he can just stand there with his family um and his teenage with his wife and teenage kids and somehow that'll wipe away his whole nasty political record um i also think it's quite amusing that he fits the role of archvillain so well because uh, you know, in that in that picture where he's dark shadowed, not everyone would uh, cast that aura, and nor would he, not, nor do all politicians see the comparison with an arch villain. So Morrison was a lot of the things, but he was no Darth Vader. Yeah. And yeah. And just for that one last thing, yeah. um, I understand that 3CR Community Radio is having a radiothon. Yes, we and are. And I'd, I'd encourage listeners to contribute because Melbourne's very lucky to have 3CR with, with the array of political and social programs that you have on it. We've got nothing like it in Sydney. We have some good community radio, but nothing to compare with um, 3CR. Mm. Exactly. So I'd yeah, so I'd encourage... Uh, listeners to donate to keep shows like Green Left Radio on the air. Well, we appreciate the the support there. Yeah, um, and if listeners want to hear interviews um, like this with you know people like Paul, then yeah, please please um, donate to 3CR. We are having our radiothon starting next week, but you yeah. can you can donate now. Um, you know you can do it through a new um, you know to keep the keep community radio. Um, Community Strong Radiothon, um, you can go to www.3cr.com.au slash donate. Um, and you can nominate uh, Green Left if you'd like, or, you know, there's there's lots of other shows as well that you can also donate. And, you know, you can even split your money, your donation across different shows. Or you can donate by phone by calling 94198377, and that's uh, Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can pay by credit card, or you can drop in to the station in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. Um, yeah, and thank you, Paul, for that for that plug. And, yeah, um, and we'll love to have you back on the show another time, but we're going to um, let you go and go, get on to a um, community announcement. Thanks very much, Paul. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job 
without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. All right, and welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Uh, we are up to the Green Left activist calendar for the next couple minutes. There's not that much going on at the moment. Things are still recovering a bit from COVID, I think, and, you know, the general malaise that we've had uh, in terms of a lot of activism, especially on the left. Um, but... This upcoming Saturday, uh, which is June 4th at 2 p.m., we have a protest against a BJP speaker in Melbourne by Australians United Against Hate at the Thornbury Theatre, uh, 859 High Street, Thornbury. And just because acronyms, uh, the BJP is the ruling party of India, and they are definitely fascists. Mm. Um on Saturday, June 11th at 2 p.m., we have a rally to stop Turkey's war on the Kurds. Um, that is at uh, the old GPO on Burke Street Mall, uh, 2 p.m. On Saturday, June 18th, 1 p.m., we have a rally, uh, World Refugee Day, uh, at the State Library, which um, you ought to know where the State Library is. <laughs> on Swanson Street. Yeah. On Swanson Street, Melbourne across Central. from Melbourne Central. Uh, 328 Swanson Street, if you don't know where it is somehow. <laughs> and we hope Some to see you at don't. all of that sort of stuff. And we've already mentioned the Radiothon, but that I think officially starts next week on the 6th and runs till the 19th. So go to what's it, 3cr.com.au to slash donate to give money to the station and help us survive and stay on the air. Um, Chloe, you also wanted to mention something, I think. Oh, yeah, it is Marlboro Day today, and, you know, it is part of Reconciliation Week. And, you know, um, Eddie Marlboro was the, you know, did set a a train of series of events that began in Queensland courts and ended in the High Court of Australia that overturned the doctrine that Australia was unoccupied or, or terra nullius. Um, so, you know, that, that High Court decision ended that legal fiction, um, and yeah, there is a, it's a 30th anniversary celebration. So if you wanted to join those celebrations today, um, there is, um, there meet, we're meeting at 12 p.m. at Federation Square, um, meet under the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags on Swanston and Flinders Street. And um, as always, a reminder that you can go to greenleft.org.au slash events to find more details on some of these things, more events. Uh, we also have stuff like um, like movies, uh, galleries, that sort of stuff on there as well as um, rallies. And you can filter by area. So if you live outside of Melbourne, you can find stuff that's closer to you. And there is a um, little form there where you can give us your email if you want uh, to get the, I think, fortnightly... Uh, activist newsletter, and if you want, you can also put in your zip code, I believe it is, your postcode, sorry, to um, get slightly more tailored uh, events sent to your email. Um, and I think that is it on yeah. the activist calendar for the moment. Well, we're going to go to a song, but stay tuned. We've got a, a good interview coming up with uh, Deepak Joshi, um, and we're at, Deepak runs a media platform called... Um, 
NRA Affairs, and he's going to be speaking to us a little bit about the racist politics of the BJP and the RSS. Um, but we're going to go to a song by Les Thomas called Song for Selva. Enjoy. You're listening to it very much radio. My name is Selva Coolidge Elvin and I am fighting for my life. Thirty-seven months I've been held, I miss my child, I miss my wife. Escape the clutches of the men with guns, Sri Lanka was my home. Australia put me in a prison camp, now it's three years gone. Here they treat me like a worthless human being. Do they see me as a worthless human being? Well, they do not know. Officials here, they question me. They say they want me to return. But how can I go back now when I've seen my people burn? It's hard to go on living when your future is denied. Yes, we'll wear you down, it's true. I could be one more suicide. So say I'm not a worthless human being. Cause no one needs a worthless human being. My family need a worthwhile human being. So they can know. girl wasn't even born when I crossed the raging sea. My daily voice on the telephone is all she knows of me. I hold her photo in my hand and I dream of a better time. How do I explain her dad's in jail when I'm guilty of no crime? Can you see me as a worthwhile human being? Only I want to be a worthwhile human being. Can you let me be a worthwhile human being? We all need to know. You are back listening to 3CR on Green Left Radio, and I'm just going to pass it to Sue Bolton to introduce our next guest. Hi. Uh, so, hi, everyone. Hi, our listeners. Um, so, the next guest for uh, Green Left Radio is Deepak Joshi. Um, Deepak runs a media program called NRI Affairs, NRI stands for Non-Resident Indians. He also co-founded the Humanism Project, which is a social justice advocacy group of the Indian diaspora. He's part of a progressive network of Indians who's campaigning against the right-wing reactionary and racist politics of the BJP and the RSS. Um, So welcome, Deepak. Um, Thank you, Sue, for having me. Sue, Sue. 
Hi, Deepak. Thanks very much for joining us today, Deepak. And one of the reasons we've invited you on to air today is to talk about the fact that a really reactionary, Islamophobic, um, misogynistic politician uh, from the ruling party, the BJP, uh, was invited to speak at university campuses in Sydney and Melbourne and is also speaking this Saturday, which has led to a protest on, on Saturday. And um, people in Sydney and Melbourne and around the country uh, calling on universities not to, to disinvite this BJP politician. Um, uh, and I'm wondering if you could, um, first of all, tell us a little bit about this uh, politician, uh, Tejas v. Surya, um, who's doing this speaking tour of Australia and why people are protesting against him. Okay, thanks. Uh, so Tejas v. Surya is a member of parliament from India's ruling BJP. He's been invited to speak at uh, the Australia-India Youth Dialogue. 2022, which is an annual event uh, to promote um, better relationship, uh, especially among young people of uh, India and Australia. Um, Tejasvi Surya is the national president of uh, India's ruling BJP's youth wing, and at 28, he became the youngest parliamentarian for his ruling party in 2019. Uh, He's known for his fiery speeches and his accused of misogyny and Islamophobia in his speeches on social media posts. Um, he's also been a member of um, RSS, which is a paramilitary organization and, and, and the parent organization of the, of the BJP. And there has been some, some opposition, uh, a, a lot of opposition to, to his being included in, um, in, 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 the, in the list of delegates for the Australia-India Youth Dialogue. Are you still there? Yes, Deepak. Uh, we're just um, fiddling with the volume buttons. I'm sorry. Um, keep on go- going. I missed that okay. last little bit that you said. Okay, so so he's he's a he's a member of um, RSS, which is um, a paramilitary organisation and a parent organisation of the BJP. Uh, I, I, I earlier mentioned that he's known for his fiery speeches and and controversial. Uh, tweets about about women, about India's religious minorities, especially about uh, Muslims. Uh, I'm just quoting one of his twe- tweets where he has said that 90% uh, Arab women have never had an orgasm in the last few hundred years and every mother has produced kids as act of sex and not love. So that, that's one of his many uh, Tweets, uh, which um, uh, which uh, which give you an idea of how how um, controversial some of these tweets are and how divisive his style of politics is. Uh, some of the other uh, speeches and, and 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 social media posts talk about Hindu supremacy and how Hindu should be Hinduism should be the dominant religion of India and how um, uh, religious conversions should be brought under control, and how Hinduism is under threat from Christianity and from Islam because of um, um, conversions uh, to all the, the, the Abrahamic faiths. 
So yeah, that's that's very briefly about Agency Surya. Um, no, thanks for that, uh, Deepak. Um, I was wondering if you could also explain a little bit about the nature of the BJP and the RSS in Indian politics, because a lot of people in Australia don't, including people within progressive movements, are not aware of the role of these organisations. And what we hear in the mainstream media in Australia is um, India being the biggest democracy in the world, and there's very little discussion or questioning about the um, some of the horrific comments being made by BJP politicians, including some calling for death to Muslims, um, the initiation of pogroms, um, you know, attempting to build Hindu temples over the top of. Um, of uh, mosques, etc. So I'm just wondering if you could explain a little bit about these two organisations, given that the mainstream media in Australia just simply does not cover what they're doing in India. To understand BJP's politics, I, I'll just go back a little and give, give a very quick lesson on India's post-independent history. India became independent from colonial rule in 1947, and, um, and, and the, the founding fathers, you could say, of uh, independent India and its constitution, um, people like Gandhi, who you may have heard of, and then people like uh, Nehru and, and Ambedkar, who was the author of India's constitution. India, India created a very secular constitution where uh, people from all faiths had equal rights uh, and the right to practice their own religion. Uh, India also um, started with a very socialist system of governance where um, uh, the public sector and the government played uh, the role of the engine for um, economic growth. Um, and largely, uh, although the system has its problems, that, that system seems to have served India well um, uh, so far. But all that changed in 2014 and uh, when, when BJP got elected and then re-elected in 2019. Uh, and one significant change um, that has happened in the Indian society is the increased attack on um, on religious minorities, especially Muslims. Um, on the, uh, So there are vigilante mobs uh, who have uh, acted with impunity, um, uh, there has been, you know, government, and with, without the government taking any action uh, on some of these um, um, activities, like uh, banning of beef or people being attacked on suspicion of carrying beef, people have been murdered uh, on on suspicion of carrying beef or eating beef. Uh, lately, there has increasingly been claims, uh, as you mentioned, that several mosques have been built on on ancient. Hindu temples, and, and there, has, there has been uh, almost a national movement identifying um, dozens of mosques, uh, which are the Islamic prayers, you know, places of worship, uh, to demolish them and rebuild the temples that existed uh, in their place, and, and a whole lot of political dog whistles coming from political leaders in India. Um, and people have acted with impunity. There have been increasing attacks on Muslims, generally speaking, um, especially the ones who are outspoken or who protest against uh, uh, these activities. Um, there's, again, 
increasing attacks on um, social activists, on journalists, on academics um, who speak out, who are critics of the government. They are either hounded or jailed or, uh, under, under some very draconian um, anti-terror laws. And, um, and especially the Indian state of Kashmir, um, where the Kashmir had a very special status under the Indian constitution that was revoked two or three years ago. And the Kashmir has since been under heavy military rule, under a total lockdown. In the first year of the change of Kashmir status, all communication was cut down. There was no internet or hardly any internet, uh, all the radio and, and television and access to the world and telephonic communication was, was severely restricted. Uh, and, and, and the place is uh, one of the most militarized uh, in the world and there have been some very serious human rights violations according to, to the reports that have, have come out. Um, one of the other things BJP has done is it has, in some of the states where BJP rules, it has introduced anti-religious conversion laws um, and um, and also laws to curb uh, interfaith relationships between people uh, uh, because uh, they seem to believe, or at least uh, they're... Um, uh, uh, the mobs uh, that support um, BJP uh, believe that uh, Muslims in particular um, use um, India's uh, re religious freedom um, to, to convert, to lure Hindu women into leaving their religion, marrying Muslim men, and then converting them into Muslims, um, to, into Islam. Uh, recently, there was news of a hijab ban where um, young, young women were not allowed to attend uh, university or school uh, uh, if they wore a hijab, and there, were, there has been nationwide protests against that and, and, and worldwide outcry against these um, uh, and then the press, uh, the Indian media has largely become a mouthpiece of the government. Um, India uh, has slid uh, very fast to about 150 in the World Press Freedom Index, uh, 150 out of 180 countries. Um, so it's, it's very close to the bottom um, when it comes to um, press freedom, very you know, comparable to countries like China, uh, North Korea, Saudi Arabia. Uh, hate speech is, is rife, uh, and, and uh, there's you know, acts of vilification and violence against Muslims and Christians, and their places of worship have been on the rise. Um, recently, there was there was there was an incident where there were mock internet auctions of uh, prominent and outspoken Muslim women were held there. People made bids. Uh, for them, uh, I mean, of course, the mock, uh, the, the, these were not real auctions, but the idea was to to humiliate, publicly shame uh, Muslim women who who, uh, who are who, who are prominent figures in India and and um, who are outspoken spoken against the Modi government. Uh, in all this, uh, there is no accountability uh, of Modi, uh, Narendra Modi, who is India's prime minister. Um, he he, um, he has never attended a Prince conference, not given any unscripted interviews since he came to power in um, 2014. Recently, as you would have heard, there was a Quad um, uh, summit in Japan 
where every other head of government um, spoke to the press, except Narendra Modi. So, so he can't be held accountable. None of his ministers can be held accountable. They just do not speak to the press. Um, the U.S. Um, Commission for International Religious Freedom, um, which, is a, uh, which is a government body that monitors religious freedom in different countries, for three years in a row they have um, classified or categorized India as a country of particular concern. Another uh, U.S. body, Freedom House, um, has uh, for two years in a row um, declared India as partly free um, as, as a democracy uh, and 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 Kashmir, uh, the, the the state of Kashmir in India, which is the only Muslim majority state, as as not free. Read um, them another another Swedish uh, democracy watchdog uh, has uh, categorized India as an electoral autocracy. Um, uh, so so you know, this is this is about BJP's politics. Then RSS, we spoke about RSS. RSS is the you could say the parent organization, or uh, 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 you know, it's about it's, it's part of the uh, group of organizations that form the the Sun family in India, and it's a far-right Hindu nationalist organization that aims to create an ethnic Hindu majority state. Um, in in 1948, soon after India became independent, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who was the leader of India's uh, freedom movement, was assassinated by by a former RSS member and and, and a Hindu nationalist. Um, RSS has been banned more than once uh, after India's independence for um, for various reasons. Uh, it is it is inspired. Uh, uh, you know, as, as an organization, it has never made any secret. Uh, of its love for the European fascist movements, in particular Adolf Hitler, uh, the first chief of RSS, um, um, uh, and, and, and uh, which, who was a person called Goldwalker, and one of their heroes, um, Savarkar, were admirers of Hitler, and, and they have openly written there. There are public statements uh, from them uh, admiring uh, the European fascist movements, uh, mainly for um, uh, for Hitler's uh, cultural nationalism and and the persecution of the Jews, um, RSS also runs extremist outfits uh, that have been charged with participating in communal riots and running campaigns against religious minorities in India. Um, a few years ago, um, a famous case of uh, Babri Mosque in India, uh, which was demolished by a mob of RSS and, and Vishwa Hindu Parishad. Um, another um, um, organization related with the BJP, uh, they're, uh, they're um, uh, activists. Um, they brought down the mosque, um, uh, claiming that it was the site for a temple. Um, so there's, there's a whole lot of... Uh, and they have many other organizations that uh, run campaigns against religious minorities. One such organization is an organization called Bal Pajran Dal, which is, which is the youth ring of um, uh, the... Vishwa Hindu Parishad, which translates to World Hindu Council, whose whose leader was convicted for um, a hate crime and murder of an Australian pastor called Graham Staines uh, in 1999 uh, in India, when he, he and his two sons were burned to death uh, on suspicion of converting people into Christianity. Uh, and if you go to the RSS website, it makes no secret of... Um, um, uh, of their contempt for 
not just Muslims, but also Christian missionaries mm. whom they consider to be foreign elements trying to interfere with their mm. dream of a, of a Hindu India. So, you know, I, I could go on for a long time. <laughs> yes, Deepak, I might just interrupt you there so that we can, because we're getting towards the end of the show. I was wondering, um, you know, a number of universities um, lent their support, be, uh, became partners or endorsers of um, the meetings that um, this right-wing um, BJP politician was speaking at. The organisation that invited him here is the uh, Australia-India Youth Dialogue, and some of the universities that uh, were initially listed as endorsees or, or are still listed as endorsees are Monash University, Deakin University, Sydney University and Macquarie University. I gather Melbourne University pulled out eventually and uh, some other universities pulled out. And then I noticed the um, comment from the spokesperson for Sydney University was that we also accept that dialogue does not endorse particular political views but rather seeks to provide a platform for the diverse and complex range of views that exist in both India and Australia. Um, and like this, you know, anemic statement from Sydney Uni, like, if this was someone who openly declared they were supportive of Hitler, there's no way Sydney University and these other universities would have lent their name to um, support this, um, these meetings. Um, so I guess that brings me um, to the point that some of the universities, I assume, which endorsed this event, didn't realise the fascist nature, origins and nature of the RSS and its incredibly discriminatory, violent, Islamophobic and misogynist calls that have been made by their guest speaker, Teshis V. Surya. I was just wondering if you could, like a sort of a final... Um, we've only got three minutes for the rest of the show. If you could explain just a little bit in three minutes how some of these BJP-aligned organisations are taking advantage of multiculturalism in Australia to advance racist and discriminatory far-right politics in Australia and why people should, why Australians should come to support this protest against this right-wing BJP politician at 2pm this Saturday outside the Thornbury Theatre um, why Australians should support this protest. Thanks, okay. Deepak. Okay. okay, so various groups, including student bodies, interfaith groups, and, and, and Australian Alliance Against Hate, which, of which uh, the Humanism Project, my organisation, is a part, they've been, they've been protesting and urging uh, partner universities to withdraw. And, and, and the visa of, um, um, of the uh, urging, urging the government to withdraw, uh, cancel the visa of, uh, of, of um, the Tejasi Surya. Um, um, so once, once this started, um, uh, many, the logos of many universities that appeared on Australia India Youth Dialogue have been, have been um, removed. Um, I mean, the universities have not, um, you know, confirmed that they've done it as a result of. Um, the protests. Uh, um, some of them have said that, uh, well, uh, they, you know, they, they were not authorized to use our logo, and they've asked the organisation to remove uh, their logo. But more importantly, uh, I think um, um, uh, 
BJP aligned organizations are, are you know, with, with the Indian population growing in Australia, organizations aligned with BJP and, and the family of organizations that are connect, connected with the BJP are, are growing in influence in politics, in media, even education. And, and uh, during the elections, uh, you may have noticed there was some news of um, you know, liberal labor, um, One Nation, United Australia Party, even Morrison and Albanese on in a in a in a uh, saffron colored scarf, uh, which which created created a huge um, you know, hue and cry about uh, them supporting um, an organization <laughs> called Vishwa Hindu Parishad, um, World Hindu Council. Um, Deepak, so, um, I'll I'll start up very quickly because some of that hate has reached Australia. There is um, you know there are social media posts, Facebook posts, etc., which are routinely being used, dog whistles, derogative words uh, against Muslims and Christians, and, and that, uh, we believe, is causing serious social discord and disharmony within the Indian community here. And, and therefore, we feel it's very important that uh, people like Tejasi Surya, who have a history of um, uh, spreading hate, um, uh, they, they, um, you know, uh, there is control, and, and uh, Australia is careful uh, before uh, the, the people like him are invited. Um, so we, we want to uh, okay. avoid giving him a platform. Uh, <laughs> we, we're going to have to end, um, end the show, Deepak, We've, because you. another show is getting ready to um, present straight after thank this one. Well, thank thank you. you very much. Um, for coming on air and talking about all of this. We'll get you back, I think, for more discussion on another, another occasion. Um, I think we want to explore these issues further and um, the protest will be at 2 p.m. on Saturday. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right. Um, and this brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings Cards that connect, care and celebrate Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au.